my name is Josh Hirsch, and I'm one of the associate editors here at the JNIS. I'd like to thank Rob Tarr and the entire editorial group at the JNIS for allowing us to do this podcast. The last few years have really been amazing in the evolution of stroke care. In late 2014, really into the uh, guts of 2015, mechanical embolectomy for stroke went from being a good idea that we believed in into something that was proven with level 1A evidence. Multiple dramatic trials were shown to be uh, positive and good for the use of these techniques in treating stroke patients who are suffering from large vessel occlusions. This was in the context of about two decades worth of strong data supporting the use of IVTPA for treating these patients with stroke. Two very different treatments administered often by different people looking at the same group of patients. These different treatments have things that overlap and elements that actually are probably a little antagonistic to each other. As we thought about the year 2015, questions began to arise amongst investigators about what role patients that present early to comprehensive stroke centers uh, IV TPA should play. And Dr. Leslie Masley, who's sitting right next to me, as well as Dr. Chandra, and an international group of authors put together their thoughts in an article that went online first in January of 2016 at the JNIS. And that article was, does the use of IVTPA in the current era of rapid and predictable recanalization by mechanical embolectomy represent good value? Not knowing that investigations were going on across the pond, as they say, with our friends on the continent, we were delighted to read a work by Dr. Weber out of Essen, working, of course, with Brene Chapeau, that came out online first in February of 2016. Comparison of outcome and interventional complication rate in patients with acute stroke treated with mechanical thrombectomy with and without bridging thrombolysis. That led some of the investigators from the original article to put together uh, a call, a clarion call for a randomized control trial. Right uh, uh, this month in April, uh, Dr. Chandra working with Dr. Leslie Majwi and uh, Meta put together a comment really synopsizing the important overlap points direct to embolectomy without IVTPA. The stage is set for a randomized control trial. Dr. Leslie Masley and Dr. Weber, Bay and Ralph join me today. They're two leading investigators in the stroke neurology space. Dr. Uh, Bay, of course, uh, works with me and really is a a tremendous thought leader in the world of endovascular neurology and, frankly, neuroendovascular across the specialties. Dr. Weber, who I've been getting to know, Ralph, did his training mostly in Europe, but as well in LSU in New Orleans, and separately obtained the equivalent of a stroke fellowship, a Master's of Science in Stroke Medicine, back in uh, Germany. Since 2011, he's been functioning as the head of the stroke unit at Alfred Krupp Hospital in Essen. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Josh. Uh, and I'd like to just say on behalf of Renault Chandra, uh, who's our co-lead author in Australia, and uh, the rest of our author pool, that we really appreciate the invitation, and we uh, have been very excited by the interest that this topic has generated in our sphere. It's really exciting. I think it's the right place on the right time. 
Ralph, you did a terrific job with that retrospective look at your practice in Essen. I'm wondering if you could describe uh, both how you did the study and what the results were. I also want to thank you for the invitation for this podcast. In uh, 2012, we started a prospective registry at our hospital, but also in the metropolitan area of uh, Ruhrgebiet here in Germany. And we collected all thrombectomies prospectively for at least 12 months. At our hospital, we started in uh, June 2012 and uh, collected a number of 283 patients which were treated with mechanical thrombectomy uh, till August 2013. So it was a prospective registry. And now we did this retrospective analysis to see whether patients uh, treated with bridging intravenous uh, thrombolysis together with mechanical thrombectomy are doing better in functional outcome and bleeding uh, complications compared to patients treated only with mechanical thrombectomy. When we started the registry in 2012, it was not clear uh, whether the combination of both treatments is safe. This was the first point uh, we looked at, and whether there's additive uh, effects of uh, both treatment modalities. So we were able uh, to follow up 250 of the 283 consecutive patients um, where we had information on uh, bridging IVT and outcome after at least three months. The mean follow-up period in our patients was 5.7 months. Uh, from the 250 included patients, 105 were treated with bridging IV TPA, and the others did not receive TPA either because they had contraindications for IV TPA, or at that time we were just not sure if we do uh, something good for the patients if we combine IV TPA and uh, mechanical thrombolysis. So starting from 2010 at our hospital, when the patient comes directly to us and the injury room is free and the neurointerventionalist is able to perform the procedure immediately, we didn't give them uh, IV TPA, but we just go from the CT room directly to the injury room and start the procedure. Uh, so this was already our working plan we had before we did this registry. So we compared these two patients group and uh, uh, first looked for patients for the whole group with um, IV, TPA, and mechanical thrombectomy versus only mechanical thrombectomy. And the baseline uh, data in these patients uh, was similar so we could compare them. Also, the symptom uh, to groin puncture time in both groups were almost the same with 233 minutes in patients with bridging uh, uh, therapy and 210 mi minutes in patients who received only mechanical thrombectomy. Uh, what we found in, in the comparison of these two groups was that, that there was no difference in the successful recanalization 
meaning Tiki score of 2B or 3, which was 73% in both patients' group. And also the complications, including uh, symptomatic uh, ICH, um, subarachnoidal hemorrhage, vessel dissection, and emboli in further vessel territories did not differ between the two groups. Most importantly, the favorable outcome at follow-up uh, did not statistically differ between both groups. The group with bridging IVTVA received a modified ranking scale value of 0 to 2 in 35%, and the group who was treated only with mechanical thrombectomy received a favorable functional outcome in 40%. The mortality also did not differ between both groups. In a second analysis, we also compared patients who had contraindications to IVTPA, mainly they were on anticoagulations or they just had received a large operation. All the time uh, window expanded the uh, 4.5 hours we use for IVTPA here in Europe. Uh, when we compared these two groups who only received mechanical thrombectomy, on the one side patients with contraindications, and on the other side patients without contraindications, we also did not find a difference in the complication rate. But of course, what we, we saw is was a difference in favorable outcome at follow-up, which was 48.6% in patients without contraindications uh, versus 32% in patients with contraindications. But this was clearly biased um, by uh, uh, the uh, comorbidities the patients had uh, and also uh, biased by the longer symptom to groin puncture time in patients which were treated with mechanical thrombectomy and contraindications for IV TPA. So Ralph, that's a terrific answer. And really, uh, there's a lot of elements of that that I'm going to want to dive a little deeper into. Uh, most notably, the consensus decision by the neuroscience group at Essen that if a patient had a large vessel occlusion and they were presenting at a time and moment when they could go directly to the suite that you would, as we say in America, not pass go, you would immediately run to the suite, and I think that that really gets at a lot of what I think the future might look like. But let's pivot for a second back to Boston and ask uh, Dr. Leslie Masley, what was the premise of the commentary uh, or the review that uh, we worked on? Oh, sure. So uh, the commentary focuses on the positives and the negatives of TPA in exactly the context that um, Ralph is discussing in the paper that they published. Uh, we evaluated that through a lens of cost and value. Um, it actually all started with a series of conversations between Renal Chandra, Brijesh Mehta in Florida, Josh and myself, uh, about the use of TPA in large vessel occlusion patients. And as we had these discussions, it became, it became clear that there were a variety of different angles, different things to consider. And so we thought we should compile them in a more organized format and uh, were able to enlist the help of a very distinguished pool of co-authors to assist with that. 
Um, the choice of the lens of cost and value was really because in the States we've been uh, seeing some evolution in the healthcare reimbursement, and there's increasing attention being paid to the value of care and the uh, economic burden of stroke, both the treatment of stroke and the disease of stroke, uh, means that it's a condition that's very worth focusing upon. So I think about a month after we published the commentary, Ralph's paper came out and added more fuel to the debate. Well, Bay, let's stick with this. I mean, in the paper, you very nicely describe advantages and disadvantages. So why don't you tell us some of the advantages of IVTPA in the context of ELVO? Yeah, so that's... Uh, that could be a long-winded answer. Um, I think there are probably four or five things to consider as advantages. The first is that uh, TPA is uh, being delivered to recanalize, and even for an elbow patient, it can achieve recanalization and therefore avoid the need for embolectomy. If you look at these recent uh, trials, uh, we're talking about probably 10% of patients that were recanalized with TPA alone. And that doesn't include the patients in Mr. Clean that were that didn't have persistent large vessel occlusions or in the Revascat cohort. So that's for proximal occlusions. The rate's even higher if you go a little more distal into the M2s or the ACA for that matter. The second advantage is that uh, TPA would act on embolite in new territory. So if you had a procedural event, uh, and it would accelerate lysis of distal fragments and so further enhance your, your target reperfusion. Third, I'd say uh, you think about circulating TPA, making the procedure easier. Uh, if you're doing an aspiration, for example, it might change clot composition to make it easier to aspirate that thrombus up. It might make device integration uh, more straightforward, and that might accelerate both the procedural time and the ability to achieve uh, complete recanalization and then hopefully reperfusion. Fourth, uh, this is a bit more theoretical. Uh, uh, in animal models, TPA delays or minimizes microvascular thrombosis, which is one of the mechanisms by which stroke patients are damaged. And so you preserve threatened tissue in animal models. It's not been shown yet in humans. And then I think you know the final thing to remember is that as much as we want to help these patients, sometimes it's not possible for technical reasons, for logistics reasons. And if we have delayed or um, remove TPA from the equation altogether, then we've removed the only chance the patient has if they can't undergo embolectomy. Well, if we're raising the possibility, Bay, of a randomized control trial, there must be some disadvantages, and I wonder if you could uh, recount some of those. Yeah, also an answer that has several components, and again, I think about it in four or five sort of uh, subcategories. So the first um, big one, and the one that gets a lot of attention, is that TPA is not considered that effective for patients with ELVO. Uh, ICA and M1 occlusions uh, recanalize at rates of 8% and maybe 30% uh, respectively, and that's on the higher end of the range. If you think about the trials that we just saw published, you know, there are uh, recan rates in the 88% in, uh, in uh, some of them. So there's a big difference in that regard. The second thing is that giving TPA incurs a delay. We see that in Rolf's data, and we see that in the trials, even in these highly specialized centers with tight protocols. Uh, if we look, about, look at Swift Prime, let's think about Swift Prime as an example. Uh, in that trial, with every hour that passed from stroke onset, uh, there was a decreasing chance of a good outcome of about 38%. 
and giving TPA slowed that process down by 32 minutes. So um, we don't know, you know, does that have an outcome cost for these ELVO patients? We know they're more time sensitive uh, than the average IV TPA case would be, um, but we don't know what the outcome cost is of that sort of delay. Additionally, uh, mechanical treatments are getting faster and faster. And uh, as Ralph mentioned, in, in, in their group in Germany, they went straight to the suite. I know that group is an extremely rapid group when it comes to treating stroke. Um, and you could argue that uh, uh, you could get the clot open before the TPA is finished, as we saw in the escape trial. So those are the first two uh, reasons. But I think the third is the most compelling. And that is that our current system is optimized to give IV TPA. So a patient has a problem that looks like a stroke, they go to the most uh, immediate local TPA-capable center. That means that if you're an elbow patient, you incur a, a very substantial delay in many cases by going to that center instead of bypassing it for a center with endovascular capability. And then finally, uh, and this has been something that's been a big theoretical concern, TPA uh, may incur harm. Uh, breaks down the blood-brain barrier, and uh, there's a chance of an increase in hemorrhage. We didn't see that in the in the recent trial, so it's possible that this is less of a concern than we were all worried about. But I think you know you, you can see that there are arguments on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, and it's definitely a, a topic that generates great discussion. I mean, that's a terrific, extremely comprehensive on both the advantage and disadvantage side, and I would uh, reinforce this this uh, process notion of a challenge because we're really dealing with that in trying to work with uh, various legislatures, the government here in the United States. Where should an ELVO patient go? Should it be to the nearest uh, facility or one that is comprehensive? And I think these questions are really critical for our patients going forward. I would also add uh, uh, from your original comments something to the disadvantages in a sense, it's, it's misplaced, but I think it's important, and we'll get a chance to talk about this more. It's that IVTPA is a far more expensive proposition than people realize. Nobody minds an expense if it's providing uh, value, if it's doing good for our patients, but is it an unnecessary expense in some of the patients? And I think that's something we'll explore in a little bit. Let's swing back to, to Ralph. Ralph, um, you alluded to this in your original comments, and I'm fascinated by this. So I wonder if you could uh, expand on it. You said in the paper that um, at the discretion of the treating neurointerventionalist and neurologist, one would decide whether to give IV TPA to these patients. So I would just uh, uh, really ask you to expand on that again. In patients that are IV TPA eligible, at your institution, what would cause these patients who could be bridged to go directly to the suite? The crucial point in our patients is if they are directly admitted at our hospital or if they are referred to our hospital from other stroke units which do not have the possibility to perform mechanical thrombectomy. Back in the days where we didn't have the uh, randomized uh, trials and their results, uh, we advised the ne neurologist at the referral hospitals to treat their patients with IV TPA if they are eligible and do not have contraindications. 
for IVTP. That's what we do also nowadays after we have published the study and after the results of the randomized trials are available because the evidence from the trials is overwhelming that so far IVTP trombectomy together has an advantage uh, over IVTP alone. So as I said, if we are on the working days and the neurointerventionalist does not treat another patient in the suite, uh, and also the anesthesiological team is available to perform the mechanical thrombectomy directly without losing time, we go directly to the NGO suite and start a procedure because it, if you would wait for the preparation of IVTPA and start uh, IVTPA, we would lose some time. This is not a huge amount of time, but it will cost us maybe 10 to 15 minutes, but you lose this time. And so we go directly to the engine room. But also nowadays, if there's a call from a, another stroke unit which wants to send us a patient for uh, thrombectomy with a large uh, arterial occlusion, we advise them to give IVTPA on the transportation, but we also advise them not to lose time with uh, starting IVTPA because as Bay already mentioned, every half an hour you uh, w are waiting with a mechanical thrombectomy, the outcome is uh, worse. So the most hot topic in the stroke community in Germany right now is also what you said in the US is uh, whether to bypass uh, the regional stroke unit and uh, just directly transport uh, eligible patients to comprehensive stroke centers which have the uh, ability to perform mechanical thrombectomy. In my point, um, this is also the crucial point, but at least in Germany, uh, we have to improve recognition of large artery occlusions in the uh, um, rescue system because in Germany, uh, people who first see the patients are not neurologists on the street or in the house of the patients. And we see that they have a lot of problems to distinguish between real large hemispheric strokes caused by uh, ICA or M1 occlusion or even a, a vesillary occlusion from patients who are not very likely to have a large vessel occlusion. Ralph, that, that's just a great point, and I would definitely agree that systems of care are critical in thinking about the, the uh, large vessel occlusion stroke patient. If we aren't recognizing them up front, all of this discussion about what to do downstream, I think, becomes less important. And I think that could be the subject, and I bet you it will be the subject of uh, other uh, podcast. I think the real question is the work that you and Chapeau and the Essen group have pioneered, which is if a patient is available and the suite is available and everything is a go, is IVTPA 
an added additive commodity that doesn't provide enough benefit to justify its use. And I would argue that the question is, is it enough that certain pioneers are doing that ad hoc and accumulating uh, data even prospectively going forward, or is it something that should be studied with a randomized control uh, trial? Uh, so I, I really think that you've given guidance to other institutions about uh, the way possibly forward with this cohort of patients. They, uh, as part of the review, there was a lot of discussion regarding cost and value, and I wonder if you might discuss the impact of IVTPA in this cost-value analysis of stroke care. So there's several ways to consider value. You know, Josh is one of the, uh, the recognized experts on this in our field. Um, and so the easy way is to think about an equation, and you have healthcare value being the uh, equivalent of your outcome achieved over the cost to achieve that outcome. So if we can get better outcomes for the same cost, then we've improved value. If we can get the same outcomes, but for less cost, then we have improved value. And of course, that holy grail of better outcomes for less cost that uh, we all strive for. If we think about that as it applies to this discussion, uh, TPA is the workhorse of acute stroke. It's been the workhorse since its introduction in the 90s, but it is very costly. Uh, uh, the stroke patient on average will use a single vial of the 100 milligram TPA dose. Remember that the maximum is 90 milligrams IV, and uh, each 100 milligram vial costs several thousand dollars. Uh, I think we have to question, are we getting the outcome benefit to justify that cost for the subset of ELVA patients that, as Ralph is describing, comes directly to the comprehensive center and can access endovascular therapy rapidly? And is the answer for those people the same as the remainder of the ELVA population that's transferring in? And what about subsets within these populations? Are dissection patients the same as atherosclerotic patients? Is fresh clot the same as old clot, et cetera, et cetera? So um, as we consider these questions, um, I think it's also pertinent to remember that in the trials that we're describing and basing so much of our thinking on now, almost 75% of those patients were treated with TPA before they underwent mechanical um, therapies. It was a very widespread intervention in these trials. So the, the, the question's an open one, and it's certainly one that warrants further study. Uh, and if the answer is that we're not getting acceptable value, then there are a myriad of questions that are going to follow, uh, and that will include how we can change our approaches to better optimize value. Okay, I, I think that that really gets at the heart of the matter. It's, it's not that IVTPA does or doesn't work. It's whether in this environment of uh, healthcare consciousness, we as stewards of stroke care are getting enough value out of giving that IVTPA. I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit, but I want to shift a little bit to ask both yourself and Ralph. Let's perhaps start with Ralph. Ralph, is there a role for patients who have high NIH scores to go directly to comprehensive stroke centers? The uh, answer you gave before about educating EMS, I suspect, is not just a German-US uh, problem, but a, a worldwide problem. Uh, what are your thoughts? In patients with a high NIHSS, let's say a uh, score of uh, more than 10 or 12 points, I would 
definitely go directly to a comprehensive stroke center and not to lose time. But the problem is the NIHSS is too complicated uh, that it can be teached uh, in the critical care system. Um, you need some experience with it and at least in the German critical care systems all the doctors and also um, the other staff is not trained well with neurological patients. So I think uh, we should use something which is much more easy to use like the FAST system um, and focus on uh, hemiparesis, speech disturbance, or uh, a neglect, maybe. Uh, so we ch just should focus on very hard facts for a large artery stroke uh, before we uh, could bypass uh, the uh, primary stroke centers. Well, okay, Ralph, I'm going to uh, throw that question to Bay. so let me broaden the question. I asked in terms of high NIHSS, but not wanting to wade into the discussion of what is the best way to screen for large vessel occlusion. Assuming the uh, screening test you're using is in some ways uh, sensitive, whether it's the FAST system or the NIH stroke scale, would you suggest that it would be reasonable for some of these patients to go to comprehensive stroke centers and bypass primary stroke centers? And let me put an edge on that question, even if it delays, possibly delays their use of IVTPA. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I'm a big proponent of the uh, primary stroke center bypass for suspected elbow candidates. And there is a nuance to the question of TPA delay that I, I'd uh, highlight. You know, we talk about the driving time, right? So from EMS picking the patient up until they arrive at the center. And primary stroke centers, uh, you know, might be much closer than the nearest comprehensive stroke center. But the time metric that we, re we really should focus on if we're thinking about TPA for these patients is the needle time, so onset to needle time. Uh, comprehensive stroke centers have a much more polished process than the average primary stroke center. And so the time that you might lose in driving to the comprehensive stroke center, you'll often gain time when it comes to the door to needle um, window, that, that period uh, that the patient gets the TPA in. And the overall effect on time might therefore not be uh, as uh, significant as you think. Now, that's for a scenario where TPA continues to provide value to these patients. If TPA doesn't provide value to these patients, then the whole equation is different, and then bypassing the primary stroke center um, can be justified at a, at a very different level. That, that's a great answer, uh, Bay, and it was a great answer, uh, Ralph. I mean, I think the answer I'm hearing from two neurologists, one endovascular uh, trained is that, yes, in patients that have a high likelihood of large vessel occlusion, understanding the benefits of the primary uh, stroke center, there is a clear and compelling rationale to go towards the comprehensive stroke center. And I think there's a lot of support for this idea in the neuroendovascular community. I think it's a question of figuring out how we make that happen with appropriate triage, appropriate systems of care. As we wind down this podcast, I, I guess I have to ask the, the million-dollar question, and I'll start 
uh, with you, Bay, and then if you, Ralph, have some thoughts you'd like to follow on with, that would be great. So uh, I'm excited about doing this RCT, but is it feasible? Would it be feasible to do an RCT comparing mechanical thrombectomy to bridging therapy in IBTPA eligible patients presenting to comprehensive stroke centers? And I, I would have that as a broad question, the ethics, the likelihood that neurologists would randomize. What are your thoughts, Meg? So I'll tackle the last part of that first, and I'd be very interested to hear in, in, uh, to hear what Rolf thinks about this. Uh, I think as a group, neurologists are a very data-driven group. Uh, stroke neurologists in particular, you think about how they um, have responded to the lack of strong evidence in the field for endovascular therapy for all this time. Uh, now, of course, I'm biased because I am a neurologist, but I do think this holds true. And so I think if we have a well-designed trial and there's good supportive data, uh, the data itself would win over many in the stroke neurology community and uh, would overcome the ethics of withholding uh, proven treatment. Um, I think the only thing I would mention as a particular sensitivity is that uh, we would need to minimize the interruption to current TPA delivery networks because these have taken years and in some cases even decades to form and to maintain and so deservedly should be protected. Uh, so to the question of the trial itself, um, what would that look like? If we, if we did a trial, if another group did a trial, uh, I have a couple of thoughts and again, I'd be interested to hear what Ralph thinks, but um, I would suggest that we, we do it in a way that's quite similar to what the group uh, in Essen have, have done so far. So you, you look at elbow patients within a TPA window, and you could choose whether you do the three-hour window or the four-and-a-half-hour window. I'd probably advocate the four-and-a-half. And you'd randomize them to bridging therapy or to thrombectomy alone. Uh, I think the trial should be designed as a non-inferiority trial. Uh, we're not trying to show that TPA is better uh, when it's added to mechanical thrombectomy. I think that the goal is to prove that it's not worse. Uh, particularly given the strength of the mechanical thrombectomy effect. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it's something that should run at uh, comprehensive stroke centers only, uh, probably involving patients that present directly to the center instead of patients that are transferred there, even if they get transferred in the TPA window. Um, that would keep timing and other variables as tight as possible, and it would minimize the need to disrupt TPA delivery at the referral point. Obviously, it would need to be multi-center. I, I don't even think the group in Essen has the volume to do this by themselves. And centers would have to meet certain targets to participate. Uh, the main outcome, uh, as with all stroke work now, should be functional uh, outcome at 90 days, preferably in the form of a rank and shift so you can pick up the more subtle changes. And then uh, recan rates and symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, uh, procedural complications, et cetera, that would be secondary. Time probably would be a secondary consideration. Um, and then I would include cost as a pre-specified uh, subgroup analysis. Um, but it wouldn't be the focus of the trial. The trial would focus on whether outcomes are affected. And then all the cost decisions can be made downstream. I think it would be fascinating uh, and have the potential to very meaningfully impact the way that we care for stroke patients now and into the future. That was a very thoughtful answer. Ralph, do you have anything to add? No, this is a perfect trial. Bay just uh, characterized. I would definitely 
want to see such a randomized trial to answer this question because our data was a retrospective analysis. And I heard from René Chapeau that such a randomized trial is already under planning. I think the most crucial point Bay mentioned is that this trial should only be done at comprehensive stroke centers because you lose too much time in patients which are secondarily transferred uh, from primary stroke centers. And um, we should not give them no TPA, uh, these patients. So I'm re really happy to look forward uh, for such a trial uh, Bay just characterized. Well, thank you, Ralph, and thank you, Bay. I mean, it's really uh, one of those uh, wonderful things when you see two different groups working in their own way, arriving at uh, similar conclusions, and I guess those conclusions are hypothesis-generating questions. I think uh, Chandra really described it nicely in his recent uh, comment that just came out in the last few days when he said these recent publications referring uh, to the, uh, of course, Chandra paper, Chandra Leslie Masley paper, and the Weber uh, Chapeau study, these recent publications have energized the debate on the use of IVTPA prior to embolectomy and have set the stage for a new randomized controlled trial for patients with elbow who are IVTPA eligible. And I think this uh, podcast has gone a long way towards making those points. I'd like to thank uh, Bay, Dr. Leslie Masby. I'd like to thank Ralph, Dr. Weber. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you, Bay. Thank you, Josh. It was a pleasure.